morning? Amen. Um, what he forgot to tell you was he had told me a little earlier that if uh, he gets the $80,000, he'll commit it to the camp budget and uh, put us over the top. So, Ron, thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate that. The camp appreciates it very much. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me this morning to Matthew uh, chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we're going to look at a section, verse 43 down through verse 48, but we're going to start with just one verse, the last verse, verse 48. I was preaching at a convention several years ago uh, for the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, uh, their national meeting, and I was speaking uh, along with another speaker there, Dr. John Patrick, who's a great uh, apologist and uh, a brilliant, brilliant individual, and he and I were driving to the airport to fly home, and uh, he was so smart, I realized that I was, I was outlegged tremendously, and so I just was asking questions. And he was talking about the shallowness that uh, he felt like a lot of uh, pulpits were preaching across America. And so as a, as a pastor at the time, I asked him, I said, well, I'd be curious, um, Dr. Patrick, uh, if you were pastoring today, what would you be preaching on? If you were going to a new church, what would you be preaching on? And uh, without hesitation, he said this. He said, I would, I would take the first three years and preach through the Sermon on the Mount. Three years. Well, I got on the plane, and, and on my way home, the Lord convicted me about I needed to do that. And so I went home, and I just decided, okay, we're gonna, however long it takes, and I was preaching Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and, and other things, and we were just working through the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest series I've ever done in my life. But uh, I was preaching through whatever came next, whatever the little section was, I'd preach through it and go to the next part. And I'll never forget, I was preaching through uh, this particular passage of Scripture uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5 when one of the gentlemen in my church got right up when I got to verse 48 and was talking about it, got up and walked out. You know, maybe he had to go to the restroom or something like that and found out he got mad and walked out and never came back to the church. And I was talking to one of our elders later on, and, and they had talked to him. They said, he got mad because you were preaching about this idea of perfection. It's not possible. Uh, you, you can't attain that. And the truth of the matter is the, the gentleman was struggling with all kinds of addictions and didn't want, in my opinion, the Spirit of God to work on him and to change his heart and to change his life. And so he just walked out and never came back. Think about this verse of Scripture this morning because this is where I... I really feel that the Lord wants us to, uh, to go this morning. I felt this for the last couple of days, and, and uh, yesterday Brandon talked about it. And, uh, Franco talked about it a little bit last night about this idea of uh, perfection, and I want to just kind of look at kind of a biblical role of what this is all about. It says in verse 48, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You, therefore, shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is is perfect. For many people, and even in our holiness circles today, there seems to be this idea that this, this verse is impractical and impossible. Not just impractical, but impossible. Therefore, it can't be impl implemented in our lives. We shouldn't have to implement it in our lives because it's impractical and it's impossible. So let's not talk about it. Let's not, uh, let's not address this verse of Scripture where the, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Bible-believing Christians, in fact, many people even in camp meetings today, 
uh, are quicker to offer an excuse than they are a biblical explanation for this verse of Scripture. We just kind of write it off like, well, I've heard some Bible teachers and scholars say, well, we, we can't be perfect in this life, right? Uh, th- th- this is something that the Lord's referring to that comes much later and uh, when we all get to heaven. By the way, with this eroding theological idea that we can't be perfect in our day, uh, I believe we've, we've eliminated the, the church's influence in our society. Because we don't think that's even possible for us to attain to that, then we've just kind of written it off. And because we've kind of moved away from this idea, there seems to be very little distinction between the church and the world. And because there's such a little distinction between the church and the world, I believe we're losing our witness in our society today. Do you believe that? Say amen. We're losing our, our witness. It's not possible. It's impossible. It's impractical. So we can't implement it. However, on the opposite spectrum is also an issue among some of the holiness crowd. I, I, I speak at multiple camps I have for 25 years, and, and I've heard people say, well, I've heard a testimony like this. I'm so thankful for, for perfection, and I got sanctified, and I haven't sinned in 20 years. And I think, well, you just did right there. That's called pride, <laughs> Right? There's this complete misunderstanding about this subject. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. So what do we do with it? Well, here's one of the questions I want to ask for us this morning. Why would Jesus command us to do something that was not reasonable or ridiculous? Why would Jesus ever say these words? Be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect perfect in heaven, if it wasn't even possible, if it was such a long shot that could ever happen on this side of eternity, why wouldn't he have said, now someday when you get to heaven, you're to be perfect as your father is, and that will, there'll be this transformation that takes place in your life as soon as you stop, you take your last breath, and, and then all this kind of wonderful things will happen, and you'll be perfect. But that's not what he says. He says, therefore, you be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Is it possible that we've misinterpreted these words of Jesus? That we have a false understanding of this truth? Now, as we think about this idea this morning, and I want us to dig into this uh, much deeper, this verse of Scripture, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'll tell you my pet peeve in life. You know what my pet peeve in life is? Inconsistency. Inconsistency is, is, uh, is, when you have a different expectation for me, uh, than you have for yourself, or uh, inconsistency is something that, that just bothers me. It just makes me just kind of riled up. And there's a tremendous amount of inconsistency in this idea about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. Do you agree with that? It's just tremendous. The church crowd, the, oftentimes the holiness crowd, who, who won't buy into the old, the old holiness message, will say, well, being perfect is not possible. It's not possible this side of eternity. And I think that's funny when our standard of spirituality is inconsistent with our standard of normality. Let me say it again. I think it's funny when our standard of spirituality is inconsistent with our standard of normality. Let me give you a couple examples. Brandon was talking yesterday in uh, his talk about Japan. He was talking about the passionate pursuit of perfection that everyone in, in, in Japan, uh, they, they, they focus on this idea. 
Everyone's focused on this idea of perfection and perfecting technology and perfecting this, the things and, and, and all the things that they're involved in. That's, that's the context. That's funny because the Christian people go around saying that's not possible. Now, let me give you a couple other examples. How about, how about the example of in sports? Do you, this is kind of football season. It's kind of gearing up. We're all excited about our, our, our favorite team getting to playing. And they're, they're in uh, football camps right now, high schools. Do you think there's a, there's a single football coach in the United States right now who's gathering the team together for the talk for the season and saying, now, guys, there's no such thing as a perfect season. We can never, ever attain a perfect season. That's, it's not even possible. So we're not even going to try uh, this side till we all get to heaven. Well, there's no way we can have a perfect season. Is it going to happen? No. There's a difference between the spirituality and our spiritual lives and, then, and the football team. No coach in the world is doing that. How about in construction? If you're, if you're trying to build a house right now and you've got a contractor and, and you say to them, I'd like you to build a house and, and here's, our, here's our dream house. Can you imagine the building coming to you and giving the estimate, saying something like this and handing it to you? Now, I, I, this, is a, this would be a, a nice house, but I don't think we can get it perfect. <laughs> or handing you the keys to the house and then say, well, we, we, we made a lot of mistakes and there's a lot of imperfections in this house and there's a lot of things that aren't finished, there's a lot of things that don't work. And you say, well, okay, it's okay because we can't have a perfect house in this lifetime. Or how many of you would be suing the contractor saying, no, 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 I've paid you all this money and I'm not looking for something that's less than perfect. How about in a hospital? How many of you would love to go to the hospital and, and you find out that you've got some serious problem and your doctor comes into your room to have a consult with you right before you go into surgery and you say, well, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I've done a lot of these surgeries before, not gotten too many of them right. I haven't been, we haven't gotten them perfect in all of them, but uh, hey, we're going to try it again. How many of you like another, another opinion, please? Well, this just seems ridiculous to me. Because when it comes to sports, when it comes to construction, when it comes to going to our doctor, how about... How about if, if today when we go to lunch and, and, and they come out to sing a song and, and we have that word of prayer, if they just say, uh, just we have an announcement to make that, you know, uh, we love cooking for you every day, but we can't have a perfect meal, and so the chicken's raw today. I may be like, hey, you want to go to McDonald's or, you know, uh, let, let's go into town. Or, or how about if you're at a restaurant and they come out and say, hey, we're glad for you to die. Is this your first time here? Yeah, first time at this restaurant. Well, we're just glad to tell you that nothing will be perfect tonight <laughs> in your meal. The service won't be perfect and the food won't be perfect. And you'll probably be greatly disappointed. But hey, we're not perfect, right? How many of you would leave? AT&T has had some commercials. Just okay is not okay. Just okay is not okay. There's a popular church promotion that advertises, come to blank, come to our, our church, and they'll, they'll list the church name. And then it goes on with this in the promotion, where it's okay not to be okay. And can I say to you today, that's the dumbest advertisement for church I've ever heard in my life. It's okay not to be okay. Now, the truth of the matter is, it's okay to come the way you are and let the Lord transform your life and to change you from the inside out but it's not okay just to come to church and stay uh, not being okay. When we think of the word perfect, we often associate the word with Jesus because he was the perfect lamb of God without spot 
and without blemish, the first Peter chapter one, verse 19 says. And we connect this idea of perfection with the idea of the incarnation. God came in flesh. God came in, in person. The holy became human. And when the word became flesh in John chapter one, verse 14, and we read in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, that he was without sin. And so we, we, we think in our minds sometimes that this idea of perfection is only Jesus can be perfect because he was the son of God and he was without sin. Or we're reasoning that among ourselves. The only reason he was able to be perfect as a human was he was God's own son. But let me ask you a question. Theologically, do we believe that Christ in us is the hope of glory? Do we believe that? Say amen. Now, it's interesting to me that we'll say, well, Jesus could be perfect because he was God's son. We can't be perfect in this lifetime because it's not possible we're not Jesus. But let me ask you a question. What if Jesus was reigning in our hearts and reigning in our lives and was flowing through us? We are comforted by the philosophy that's so popular in our, in our church culture today that nobody's perfect. So we ignore this teaching and instruction of Jesus. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Psalm 37, verse 37 says this, Mark the perfect man. Take note of Mark, underline the perfect man. Behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace, is what the psalmist said. The Bible gives us many examples of people who prove to us that in this flesh, in this lifetime, we can follow this command of Jesus. Let me give you a few examples today. Remember Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9? Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. The Bible describes him as a perfect in his generation. Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. How about Job? In Job 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God, and he shunned evil. You say, man, that's incredible. Look at some of these people. Noah, Abraham, Job. How about Asa? 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 14. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. Quite a list. How about Hezekiah? In 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3. I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept. Now, if you look at this list, Noah, Abraham, Job, Asa, and Hezekiah, these individuals, these examples were not sinless people. They weren't described as perfect before God because they never sinned. They never messed up. They never did anything wrong. Well, that's good news, right? <laughs> although I would argue this, that although these individuals weren't sinless, 
Those who follow this instruction of Jesus to be thou perfect as, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and those who are pursuing this work in our life by the Holy Spirit, by Christ living in us, there's the hope of glory. I would argue that these individuals are sinning less and less because they're being more filled with the Spirit of God and God is working in them and empowering them to overcome sin and temptation in their lives. Because of the love of Christ and our desire to please Him, we can fill, fulfill this requirement of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper. To fully understand, we've seen the world around us is in pursuit of perfection. A lot of Christians are kind of excusing themselves and making excuses why it's not possible in this, this world. But let's understand this. The, word, the biblical word perfect is not a word of comparison, but a word of completion. It's not a word of comparison. So, as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, we dare not classify ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves and others, and that is not wise. So what happens sometimes in these holiness circles when we talk about this idea of perfection? It's not possible. It's, it's easier just to say, well, I'm, I sin every day in word, thought, and deed, and, I, and I'm, there's no way we can be perfect this side of heaven. And, you know, what, what we often look at and we compare ourselves with other people. And so I, I would maybe look at myself and, and compare myself with Steve. And, and, and I'm, I'm not as far along in my journey as he is. And so I'm, I can't be, because I'm comparing myself with Steve or comparing myself with one of the other saints in the camp. And, and we, we compare ourselves with ourselves and other people and go, and sometimes it's prideful, right? We say, well, hey, look around. I mean, I'm not perfect, but look at these other people. I'm, I'm at least farther along than they are. So I must be more perfect than, than they are. And it's that's not the way the word is used. It's not, a, it's not a word of comparison. It's a word of completion. So what did Jesus mean when he says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect? Well, we can't take the verse out of context. We have to look at this verse of Scripture in context. And let's go back to verse 43 in this same passage of Scripture. Listen to what it says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors and sinners do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The therefore in this verse of Scripture that starts verse 48 lets us know that this verse is linked to the previous section, the previous verses, verses 43 down through verse 48, it's all one section. You cannot take this in isolation. You can't run off of verse 48 and say, here's what it means to be perfect. You have to look at the context. And so Jesus teaches us this simple thing. There are four practices of the perfect. The four practices of the perfect. If you have a piece of paper, I want you to write these down. We're going to look at this verse 43 through verse 48 
and we're going to note the four practices of the perfect to see if we can't understand what it means to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Number one, the first practice Jesus said alludes to before the therefore is the practice is this. The perfect, they love their enemies. Verse 44, verse 8. Leviticus and Luke and Romans and Galatians and James describe the law, which happens in Galatians, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And the teaching of the Scripture taught us, teaches us to love our neighbors. It was a fundamental truth in Jesus' day. It was a fundamental principle of the law. We were to love our neighbors. Now, the Jewish people added a few things. You've heard it said. It's this hard section of Jesus, hard sayings of Jesus uh, in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and they had devised that we were to love our neighbors as long as we could define who our neighbor was, and that was the person we were supposed to love. And what Jesus said, you've heard you're supposed to love your neighbors uh, and hate your enemies, but I say to you something different. The Jewish teachers by neighbor understood only those who were of their own country, only of their own nation, and of their own religion. That's who was their neighbor. Those are the people they were to look after, those whom they were pleased to look upon as their friends, outside of their own country, outside of their own nation, and outside of their own religion, they did not have to love their neighbors. They could despise and hate these other people who weren't just like us. By the way, that's what sparked the story of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer wanted to know, who's my neighbor? Was trying to justify himself trying to justify his actions on who, who I have to be kind to, who I have to be nice to, who do I have to love, and who is it okay that I despise and hate? Remember the other morning when I was talking about the clothing that God expects for us to wear as holiness people? Colossians chapter 3, 14, but above all these put on love, which is the bond of perfection, what is this first practice of the perfect? Is they love their enemies. Now, I love in, in verse 46, there's this little bit of commentary there that Jesus said, now, what good is it if you, if you only love those who love you? For if you love only those who love you, what reward have you? Luke, when he writes this passage of Scripture, he says, what benefit is it? What benefit is it if you just love those who love you? And then he goes, don't, don't even the tax collectors do that? Don't even sinners do that? It's, it's amazing to me how we think that, that so many times in the holiness world, perfection means we never sin. And we stay, around, we stay away from people that do. We're not interacting with, with people who have sinful lifestyles. Therefore, we don't get to witness to them. We don't get to share Christ with them. We just stay away from them. We isolate ourselves. We insulate ourselves from, from the world. And, and we love our own people. We love the people just like us. And oftentimes, we're like the Pharisees who have a tendency to look down on other people who don't have the light that we have. And, and we love just our own people. And i got to say to you, as Jesus said, what benefit is that? That's not holiness of heart. That's hardness of heart. When you love only those that are just like you, when you love only those who love you back, when, when you love only those who are just like you, that's not holiness. That is hardness of heart. And Jesus said, 
if you want to be perfect, you got to practice this. You have to love your enemies. The second thing he points out is this. If you want to be perfect, the second practice is they, they bless those who curse them. Look at verse 44, the second part. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. They don't react to the attack of others. They bless them. When others are, 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 are cursing them, when others are spitefully speaking against them, what do they do? They bless them. By the way, this is not easy. Remember, this is part of the hard sayings of Jesus. This isn't the easy section. This isn't faith 101. This is, this is if you want to be perfect, this is, this is what you've got to do. How many of you have ever had someone speak bad about you? Anyone? How about when those people are in the church? Hurts. Well, what do you do? Oftentimes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is what happens, even though that's not what the Bible says. To bless here, and this word bless means to speak well of or speak well to, to not slander. Very interesting, right? Because oftentimes we have a tendency to match the attitude that's coming at us, to be defensive. What does Jesus say? If you want to be perfect, love your enemies and bless those that curse you that spitefully speak against you. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate insult when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Bless those who curse you. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 through 13, we bless those who curse us. Romans 12, 14 to 19, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. What do they do? The perfect, what is their practice? They love their enemies. Number two, they bless those who curse them. Number three, the third practice is they do good to those who hate them. Back to verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you. Leviticus 19, interesting, because the law commanded us to love our neighbors and to do good. The law never commanded to hate anybody. God never says to hate. Again, they had translated that to, to fit in. You do good to the people who are just like us. You do good to the people who love you, who are just like you. Do good to the people who do good to you. And again, Jesus asked the question, what good is that? The religious leaders had added this whole section in throughout time about it's okay to only do good to those who are good to you, and you can hate all the other people. In doing good, I would remind you that we resemble God. God does these things, and therefore, we are to be good. When I was pastoring outside Fort Wayne, Indiana, we had sent one of our elders on a mission trip to India. And he came back with this incredible story. He told me about a guy he, they had, had uh, been converted several years ago on a, a trip, a previous trip, and he was telling him this story about when he became a Christian in the village, the village kicked him out. All the, the leaders in the village kicked him out. And he was kicked out by himself they, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And his wife and kids uh, had, had kicked him out as well because he was a follower of Jesus now. And so he was out, but he was... 
he was a, a, a rice farmer. And these were days where uh, the, the family didn't have enough to eat. And even though he'd been kicked out by the village and even though he'd been kicked out by his wife and his kids and he was off living off by himself and, and working in the rice fields, he came back every day to bring his wife and family food. And finally, his wife said to him, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? He began to talk about the love of Christ that he had put in his heart and how Christ had changed his heart. And even though they had kicked him out, he wanted to do good because that's what Jesus would have him to do. What are the practices? To be perfect, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And fourth, to pray for those who spitefully use them. Back to verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This word spiteful here means to press on one who is a, a, in a race or run swiftly to reach a goal. And that other runner that's pressing on them is to hassle or harass someone unjustly without cause. And our responsibility in that role is to pray for that individual. Not repay, but to pray for that individual. Matthew 5, verse 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I got a lot more I could say about prayer, but that's what Steve's preaching on tonight, so I'm going to stay away from his turf on that. He'll clean up. He's going to clean up on Al 7 here, okay? What are the four practices of the perfect? They love their enemies. They bless those who curse them. They do good to those who hate them. And they pray for those who spitefully use them and persecute them. And then Jesus says, therefore, we are to be, heaven, we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Barnes points out in his commentary, the word commonly means finished. It means complete. It means pure. And it means holy. Finished, complete, pure, and holy. That's what this word perfected means. Being perfect. And, and it applied to a, a mechanism, if you would, as a machine that is complete in all of its parts. And this is very interesting for our full understanding of what it means to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Because the way this word was used is that the machine has all of its parts and they're all working together so the machine can fulfill its function or its purpose and do what it's been called to do. So I have a, a brand new lawnmower that my brother gave me and uh, he said, it's just missing one, one little part there, and that's okay. It's a, it's a fairly new lawnmower, and uh, I, can, I can order another piece, kind of a cover that goes on that. Um, and I'll do that as soon as, as soon as later. But I have this old, old lawnmower that I've had for about nine years that I picked up at a garage sale for 15 bucks, And it looks terrible. It looks absolutely terrible. But it has all the parts. 
And I've never done anything to it because I'm always planning I'm going to get another lawnmower. And, and every year I just, I don't do anything. I've never changed the oil in it. I add gasoline to it. And I, I push that little knob three times and I pull it and it starts every time on the first time. And it looks awful. It looks like this terrible, terrible. If you looked at my lawnmower, you'd say, man, that's a very imperfect lawnmower. And if you look at the other one that's in my, my, my garage right now, you'd say, man, that is the perfect, perfect lawnmower, right? And, and it's just, it, 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 it works, right? And, uh, and, and, but it's missing that one piece where the grass shoots out and, and it, it, got, it got chopped up and used up. And so, but you look at this old thing, it starts every time. It works perfectly. Why? Because all the parts are there and it's, it's not missing anything and it fires on the first pull and it does what it was designed to do. Now, as we apply this principle to this idea of what the, the Scripture means, it refers to completeness of parts where no part is defective or is missing. That means don't just, don't just love your enemies or don't just say, well, I want to work on um, be, being good or, or, or blessing those who, who curse me or say bad to me. Or I may even start with praying for those who spitefully speak against me or, or persecute me. The idea that Jesus is saying here, and this idea of perfect is, is, a, is, a, is a mechanism, it's a mechanical idea where all the parts are working. And so Jesus, how many did he say? There were four things that happened. There are four practices of the perfect. They love their enemies. They bless those who curse them. They do good to those who hate them. And they pray for those who spitefully use them. And we don't pick one or two of the four or three of the four when we choose four of the four that Jesus said are the practice of the perfect and these are functioning and working together, then we can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in heaven. Why? Because that's what he set as an example for us when he was here. When they disrespected him or treated him poorly, he loved them. And he, the Bible says they loved him to the end. When they cursed them, he, him, he blessed them. When they did evil to him, he did good to them. When they disbelieved, he continued to provide for them. And when they said all kinds of evil things, he prayed for them. What did he pray as he's dying on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't just do one of these things. Do all of them. To be perfect is to practice these four statements just like our Heavenly Father did. The Greek word that's used here is teleos, and it has nothing to do with what we might call abstract, philosophical, metaphysical perfection, not comparing ourselves to each one another. It is about full growth. It describes a person who's reached his, their full growth stature is teleos in the, the, the Bible, in contrast to a half-grown person. A student who has reached a mature knowledge of his subject is teleos, as opposed to a learner who is just beginning, who has yet to grasp the things that he's going to learn in his classroom or under his terms of study. Now, it helps me understand this, because so many times we compare ourselves, we look at the actions of other people, and we determine if they're perfect or not, and we say, well, they're not perfect, because look at their actions. And I remember a time when, when my kids were little, we were living in Wilmore, we only had two kids at the time. And I was out working in the yard, and I was sweating terribly. And my daughter went in the house, and she grabbed a glass, a dirty glass, out of the sink that mom hadn't washed yet. 
And she filled it up with water and brought it out to me to have something to drink. Now, were her actions perfect? Yes. What did I do? I gulped it down. <laughs> you know why? Because her heart was perfect. Had her age and her stage and her teleos at that moment in time, she saw her dad needed something. She saw that if I got daddy a drink of water, it would help him. And she wasn't thinking, ah, I'm going to get him the dirtiest glass in the, in the sink and I'm going to go out and make him drink something dirty. No, that wasn't in her heart at all. It wasn't in her mind at all. Now, let me ask you a question. My daughter's almost uh, 29. And if she comes home next weekend and I'm working in the yard and she goes and gets one of the dirty glasses and brings to me and says, here, Dad, got you a drink. Is that perfect? No. Because she knows better. To put it another way, in the Greek, the, the Greek idea of perfection is functional. A thing is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned and designed and made. It was teleos. And all things mechanically working together, if all things are working together, these four things are working together in unison, and all parts are functioning the way they should, then that person is being perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect. Let me illustrate this. I grew up in camp meeting, as I mentioned the other night, and uh, my family, uh, we were, our home camp was Hollow Rock Camp Meeting, and, and my family did a lot of music evangelism. And so we would often hit several camps, sometimes two or three camps in the course of the summer. Usually two of them, my mom and dad were doing music. And so one of those camps was often my grandparents' camp. It was Bentleyville Camp in, in uh, western Pennsylvania. And one of the highlights for me growing up, my, every Saturday, my grandfather, it seemed like every Saturday, went down to the campground, even if it wasn't in season, and they, he worked, he was one of the trustees on the, on the campground, and, and you go down, when you went to visit Grandma and Grandpa and Aunt Ruth, uh, we went down to the campground on Saturdays, and we were always working on, on projects and things like that, and, and, and I learned a lot from him. And In fact, when he passed away many years ago, one of my prized possessions is a toolbox, that I have of my grandfather's that's filled with some of his old, old tools that I remember working with on Bentleyville campground as we would go down and fix the preacher's cottages and fix the plumbing and do some of the projects around the camp. Now, my grandfather grew up in, in, uh, in a very difficult time and didn't have a whole lot growing up, and, and he took a lot of care of his tools. He always uh, engraved in every tool, van, the word van, which was for Van Gilder, and and there are old, old tools you could tell they were used. And, and I, I keep that, that toolbox. I don't use it very often. It's just something I keep on my tool chest as just a, a remembrance of my grandfather. Now, my, my father-in-law, uh, through the years, uh, loved tools, and he's bought me all kinds of the most amazing tools. I have the best tool collection of any preacher you've ever seen in your life. I mean, I, and they all look brand new because I don't know how to use any of them. But I have, uh, I have this incredible tool collection. People come over to my house all the time like, do you have a this? Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I have 30 years, uh, 33 years I've been in the family, and my father-in-law uh, for Christmas and birthdays would often buy me tools, and, and a great, I've got the best set of tools, and they're like, they're like brand new. Uh, recently, I was working on a project, and I was, it was a screw that needed to be tightened, and I, I had just dozens of these screwdrivers, but I didn't have one that fit the size that I needed. And I was thinking, what am I going to do to fix this, tighten this screw that needs to be fixed? And I just got thinking... 
I wonder if my grandfather had one something that size. And I pulled out an old, worn, even, even the edge of the screwdriver was kind of a, a bit tipped and kind of marked off a little bit, broken off a little bit. But I took it and I put it in that slot on the screwdriver and I turned it and it tightened perfectly. That's teleos. All these other tools that have never been used, that's what we think. No, those are the perfect tools, but they didn't fit the slot of the screw. So it didn't fit perfectly. But the old one, the worn one, the used one, fit just perfectly. Verse 45 says, we've been called to be sons of God. You and I have been called to be sons of the living God. And how do we live that out? By being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. What if we shifted our thinking today? What if we changed our mindset from thinking, I've got to be perfect just like this other person who I perceive is perfect. I can't see their heart. I can't see and know what God is doing. Some of these people maybe that we write off that come into our church and we think they're, they're so imperfect, but at that stage and place in life, they are just perfectly where God has them to be and they're growing and they're maturing in their faith. And there's so much more maybe we could be learning from them than those who've isolated themselves and insulated themselves from the lost and, and, and a world who needs Jesus Christ. And what if we were to say, with God's help and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I am going to implement these four things, to love my enemies, to bless those who curse me, to do good to those who hate me, and to pray for those. Those are the four practices of the perfect. Now, quickly, you can't do that by yourself. You can't do that on your own. So briefly, here's some quick scriptural help to help us through to pursue this, these four practices. Number one, you'll need God's help. Galatians 3.3 says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? You can't do it in the flesh. You cannot carry out this sermon today that I want to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is, but just decide, okay, that's a good idea, Bert, and I'm going to go live that out. I'm going to do that. You cannot live this life in the flesh. You are going to need God's help to live this life call to perfection. Number two, you will need his sufficient grace to work through your weakness. You will need his sufficient grace to work through his weakness. Second Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 says this, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You need God's help and you need his sufficient grace and his spirit to be working in you in your weakness if you ever hope to do these four practices. Thirdly, you will need the power of prayer and practice to practice the will of God. You will need the power of prayer to practice the will of God. Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God of God. Can't do it with on your own. Four, you will need to patient, you will need to be patient while God works in and through you. 
James 1, verse 4. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, teleos, lacking nothing. Philippians 1, 6, for he who began a good work in you will complete it. And number five, you will need to keep pressing on. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Not that I've already attained this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward those things which are ahead, I press forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let as many as are mature. What's the word perfected? Mature, complete. As many as mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God reveal it to you. We're left with a choice. Do we continue to buy into the philosophy of the church today? Or do we buy into the commandment of Jesus to be perfect as he is perfect? There was a a rich young ruler who came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. What must I do to inherit eternal life was the question. And Jesus answered to him, if you want to be perfect... If you want to be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And you know what he decided? He was like the young man in my church who walked out when he heard this verse of Scripture because he decided, I don't want to pursue that. I'd rather just keep living my life, doing what I'm doing, and struggling with what I'm struggling with. And I don't want to pursue that. And he walked away. In closing, Oswald Chambers said, Christian perfection is not and never can be human perfection. Christian perfection is the perfection of a relationship with God that shows itself to be true even amid the seemingly unimportant aspects of human life. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to understand this commandment and you'd give us a witness in the world to love, to bless, to do good, and to pray for those who treat us wrong, that we may be like our Father in heaven, perfect in all your ways. Pray that this message, Lord, would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and let's respond to this? All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender
pray. Father, I pray that um, you would give us a new understanding of this commandment. And with new revelation, you would help us to put those things into practice. I pray that you'd increase our influence, increase our witness for you by learning how to do what you called us to do. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to just focus on these truths today, prepare us uh, for what you've laid on Steve's heart for this evening, and I pray, God, that you'd speak through him and we'd, we'd see the, the grace of God and the Spirit working tonight in the services. Be with our activities this afternoon, and we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.